The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. You may remember, I don't know how many weeks ago it was now, I didn't really count it up. But back in Genesis chapter 11, 27 to 32, we read of the passing of one generation and the emergence of the next. It was the passing of Terah and the emergence of Abraham's generation. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor and Haran, and uh, Haran became the father of Lot, and we've read their story. While the father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor, or Abraham as he was at that stage, both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sariah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran and both the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there, and when Terah was 205, he died in Haran. Then last week, we read in Genesis 22, from verse 20, that following the story of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac, we read, sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor. As the firstborn, Buzz's brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, uh, Kesed, Hezo, uh, Pildash, uh, Jidbla, however you get, Bethuel, and Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. His concubine, whose name was, etc., also had four kids. It's 50 or 60 years since Abraham and Sarah had left Haran. And it seems like this may have been the first news that Abraham had received from back at home. Because it seems in this moment he discovers that while Abraham has managed to have Ishmael and Isaac, his brother Nahor is now the father of 12 sons. And one of those sons, Abraham discovers, has a daughter, Rebekah. And over the next three Sundays, Rebekah is going to join our story as she becomes the wife of Isaac and the story of another generation begins. However, as the story of a new generation begins to emerge, the end of the generation that has now lived comes into view. And so this morning we turn into chapter 23 and we're told that Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Following on from my message uh, the Sunday before last, that near sacrifice of Isaac up there in uh, Moriah, the question has been raised a couple of times. How did Isaac feel about this whole take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him? And then the question was also asked, and how did Sarah feel 
about this whole sacrifice of your son. As we finish the story, Abraham had, had planted a tamarisk tree and we were told he settled in Beersheba, right down the bottom of the map. However, some sources and commentators with various levels of evidence have suggested that both Sarah and Isaac had been so concerned about Abraham's actions that they left him in Beersheba and returned to live in Hebron, 42 kilometres away. They'd been living there previously at the time that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. In fact, if you can look into that map, you can see names that have been and will be familiar. Mamre, Kiriath Arba, uh, Machpelah, and Hebron. And so now we're told that when Sarah died, she is in Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, and Abraham goes from Beersheba to weep and mourn for her. So a lot of commentators believe that after the uh, potential offer of, or the possibility of offering Isaac, his only son, that, Ab that Isaac and Sarah didn't cope with that and that resulted in a separation. Other commentators have a variety of other options um, but it's a distinct possibility that they lived in a separate place. We're not told how long after the events at Moriah it is until now, but it doesn't seem to be a very long period of time. But it's possible that the coming to mourn is more or less like we did this morning. We've come for a purpose, we've gathered for a purpose, not coming from a distance. But a simple reading of the text does lend itself to that possibility. The use of the words to mourn and to weep reinforced that Abraham was not simply going through the formalities of mourning his wife, but he truly was grieving, grieving the loss of a dearly loved wife. Now Abraham and Sarah are both listed in Hebrews 11 among the great heroes of the faith. And so we might go, well, it couldn't possibly be that they had this disagreement that saw them separated for, their fi for her final days by this distance of 42 kilometres. But if there's anything we've learned as we've read through the story is that Abraham and Sarah, like you and I, are deeply human, profoundly human. And if I take anything away from this series... It is that God uses very ordinary, very flawed human beings to fulfill his plan and purposes. I remember Andy's often made the comment that when he was growing up in church and all of these Old Testament stories, you're meant to be the hero of the story. So you're meant to emulate these great heroes of the Old Testament. And so in this case, you're meant to be Abraham or you're meant to be Sarah. And it's like, when we do the DBS, we do a Discovery Bible study, we ask the question, is there an example to follow? These are not examples to follow. These are examples to learn from. They are deeply flawed, real people. It seems the same truth plays out time and again in different contexts and will do as we continue to go through the book of Genesis. And even in the New Testament, the great apostle Paul says, 
The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul's talking about a very different kind of situation, but he's still talking about the fact that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. We sang before about broken vessels, the fact that God can take and use broken vessels. When I think I can do this, when I rely on my own strength, I fail. But when I fully realise and acknowledge just how powerless I am, then I need, or I learn, to lean fully on him. Jesus put it this way, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do much. No, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Christ. And so we're told that Abraham went to mourn for Sarah, or went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites and said, I'm a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so that I can bury my dead. And the Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his Sorry, refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zor, on my behalf, so that he will sell me the cave at Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite, who was sitting there among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city, No, my lord, listen to me. I will give you the field, and I will give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephron in their their hearing, Listen to me. If you will, I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so that I can bury my dead here. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him. Not fully agreed to his terms, he agreed to the price. Weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field and Machpelah, uh, near memory, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders were deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. 
Afterwards, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. You know, it's almost 60 years since God had said to Abraham, go from your country to a land that I will show you. And then we read up in Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7, that Abraham had travelled through the land as far as the great tree of memory. Shechem, sorry. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land and the Lord said to Abraham, to your offspring I'll give this land. And then in Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15, the Lord said to Abraham, after the Lord had parted from, look around from where you are, north and south, I'm going to give this land to your offspring forever. And then he said, go walk through the land, for I'm giving it to you. And then in chapter 15, again, the promise of the land. Abraham is now living in Hebron, and God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to you as a possession of it. And then down in uh, verses 18 to 21, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And then in chapter 17, verse 8, the whole land of Canaan where you resigned as a foreigner will be given to you as an everlasting possession. So the promise keeps coming back. And now that Sarah has died in Hebron, in the land of the Hittites, Abraham approaches them to buy... to buy a plot of land with a cave in which he can bury his wife. For all his failings, as we have seen with Abimelech earlier on, in spite of Abraham's failings, the hand of God's blessing has been clearly upon him. And we are told that he is recognised as a mighty prince. A foreigner may be, but so respected as to be invited to bury his dead in the choicest of their tombs. But Abraham insists, no, I want you to ask that I might buy this cave and this field for its full price. And then Ephron himself said, no, 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 my Lord, I'll give you the field. And still Abraham says no. You know, this bit of land, it's only a small piece of land, just a field and a cave. It's just a small part of the land that God has promised Abraham. One day, all of this land, and this is where it's promised, often being repeated, there at that spot, God has said, this whole land will be yours. Including this specific, the land of the Hittites. You know, if it was me, if I was Abraham, I'd be thinking, great, God's promised me all this land, now I've just got this bit. God wants to give me some for free. 
God's given me a son as a promise of a great nation. Now I've been given this bit of land as a promise of all the land that will one day be mine. But Abraham's not me. He insists on paying. You may remember after Lot had been rescued and the king of Sodom had offered to give the spoils of battle to Abraham as a thanks. And Abraham had said to the king of Sodom, with hand raised I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you would never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. And Abraham is even more sure here. God has blessed him. He has provided. And now from within his own resources, he is more than able, by God's provision, to buy a field and honour his wife. Abraham now knows more than ever that when God has promised, God will provide. He will honour his word and he will, he will honour those who are prepared to take him at his word. The price is not important. The principle is everything. Abraham didn't want to feel any sense of duty or obligation to the king of Sodom. Neither does he want to feel an obligation to the Hittites. He knew it before, but after the events of Moriah, he knew it. God was his provider, and God had provided the means by which Abraham could pay a deposit on the land of promise. This field and the cave at the end of it was extremely significant. After some 50 years of promises, 50 years of living as a foreigner in this land, God had promised would one day be his. Finally, he now owns a portion. God has provided the first portion of the promise. He had provided Isaac, and now he's provided the land. Not the Hittites. God has provided this land where his wife will be now laid to rest. Abraham hadn't sat around waiting for God to throw good things at him in his direction. He'd spent 50 years learning to walk in obedience. Neither will God throw stuff in our direction if we just sit there waiting. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, For even when we were with you, we said, uh, The one who was unwilling to work shall not eat. So God expects us to do our part. But God is the provider. He provides us with the opportunity if we keep our eyes on him and to learn to live by faith in him. In the well-known passage from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, and about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and gone tomorrow, tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Waiting for God to provide can be really frustrating. For a long time now we've been on a journey believing for God to do something. Now we're not just sitting around doing nothing. What we are doing is trying to listen to God and obey his voice. One of the great frustrations for me in this story is how long things take to happen. But God is working out his purposes. That question we asked earlier, what's God saying, what's God doing? We need to be a people who listen to what God is saying and what God is doing and rely on him. Lots of people will tell you how to do the things that will get the end result supposedly that God wants for us. But I believe God wants to do something new and something different, something fresh. And I'm excited. One thing I'd correct Ashley on, you know it's not only the uh, young ones who are going to learn from the old ones. In fact, some of us old ones have got a lot more to learn. And I am so encouraged by folk who are taking first steps of faith, learning to trust God. Because often as we get further along in our journey, we figure out we've got this. And one of the things that strikes me in this passage is we have the passing of a generation and the rising of a new generation. And a few weeks ago, I believe God said to me, you came to a church with a past. A very mixed past, some really good things, some amazing things that God has done here in the past. I met a guy at a pastor's retreat last week. He was excited to meet me, not because it was me, but he remembers reading a book many years ago that really excited him about a story about God, what God did here at Te Atatū Bible Chapel. So we have a church with a past. And I believe God said to me, we now have a church with a future. We honour the generation that has gone before. The stewards of the previous generation who are, Gordon is still with us. But we have stewards for a new generation. We have families that God is bringing in for a new generation. And the younger generation will encourage the older and the older will teach the younger. And together we will fulfil the call and the promise that God has placed upon this church family and upon the body of Christ. Because the church is only one generation away from extinction. And every generation 
must learn not how to do church from the previous generation, but they must learn to listen to the Father, to hear what God is saying. When I first became a pastor, I spent so many days at conferences, so many hours reading books about how church should be done. And I tried a lot of them. But at this stage of life, I think I've learnt to listen to God. And as frustrating as that is sometimes, I'm grateful for people around me who help me listen to God. So I thank you, Gay and Esme, who pray for me, bring me words, and others who pray and bring words. Because God doesn't want to do what he did yesterday. His mercies are new every morning. We are in a new season. Not only as a church, we're in a new season as a society. And doing church the way we did it 50 years ago doesn't work today. Doing evangelism what worked 50 years ago doesn't work today. I'm thinking in the new year I'm going to do a church, in January, uh, February, I'm going to do a, a message that I did years ago on God's favourite church. And I'm going to talk about three churches. And I'll tell you briefly. One is the church in Acts. And so many pastors today look at Acts 2, 42 to 47 and say that's what church should be but the thing with Acts 42, 47 churches it was 3,000 God-fearing Jews became 3,000 God-fearing Christians that was a message for that day and God moved in that day but that's not a message for today because we're not God-fearing Jews about to become God-fearing Christians there's not a lot of God-fearing Jews in our neighbourhood that I'm aware of that we need to reach. The second church was the church at Athens where Paul goes and he has this great intellectual argument. And there are, there are so many Bible teachers today who will teach you how to argue for your faith, how to reason for your faith, as Paul did at Athens. And that becomes their model. And I learned some of that stuff, how to do some of that stuff. But then I read the bit about Athens and in Athens some of the People became believers, but most of them just said, hey, that was a really interesting discussion. Let's talk again another day. But the church that grabbed my heart was the church at Corinth. Corinth was an immoral city, filled with immorality. And when the people came to church, the Bible, uh, Paul says, you were blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. They had every spiritual gift was active in that church. But man, did they have some issues. But you know something? I long for a church with issues. Because I long for a church with people who have got issues. Because you know something? If we have a church that doesn't have people with issues, then we better leave. Because we've all got issues of some sort. But we have a world that is increasingly broken, increasingly far from God. And only God knows how to reach them. Therefore, we must learn to listen to what God is saying and what God is doing. And I have been encouraged this morning to hear you doing that. So many folks sharing stories of hearing and seeing opportunities for conversation, asking God for opportunities for conversation. Let's keep journeying together because I believe God wants to do something new and fresh. May he bless you. May he speak to you and through you.
Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.